Well, it's been quite a journey through the Gospel of John. It seems like uh, we've been in John for a, quite a long time, and, and we have, and that's because, uh, as Tim even just prayed and reminded us, you know, we went through uh, a long stretch there where we weren't in John because of our uh, restricted worship. But we return this morning uh, to nearing now the very end of the gospel. We looked last week at the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ in his body where Joseph of Arimathea uh, gave our Lord his brand new tomb that had never been used. And this morning, we look and take, begin to look even at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Our text today is John chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So if you have a Bible with you, as always, I encourage you to open it up and follow along as, uh, as I read, and, and just keep it open throughout the, the sermon, uh, because I'll be referring to different verses and phrases here and there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you should find a Bible in the seat in front of you, somewhere in that row. Uh, and if you use that Bible this morning, uh, the passage, uh, John 20, verses 1 to 10, will be found on page 906 of that Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So as John has already reported, Jesus has died. He died a brutal death of crucifixion. And in fact, Jesus was so manifestly dead that, uh, that when the soldiers came to break the legs of the men who had been crucified in order to hasten the death, when they got to Jesus, seeing that he had already died, they did not break his leg, his legs. So Jesus was uh, taken down from the cross on Friday afternoon. His body, as we know from our text last week, was wrapped in linen cloths, and interspersed in those cloths was 75 pounds of a mixture of costly spices and aloes, which would have sort of created a spice paste, if you will, and would have stuck the, the linen to his body. And again, they did this not uh, to embalm the body, uh, which the Egyptians used the spices for, but just to essentially mask uh, the, the stench of decay. 
And again, Jesus was then taken, his body that was then wrapped in these spices and these claws were taken to this brand new uh, tomb that had been carved out of the rock, a tomb that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea uh, that he essentially gave to Jesus, even though it was obviously for himself, because as we spoke last week, at that point he uh, came out as a disciple of Jesus and was a very wealthy man. Now Luke tells us something that, that John didn't quite mention. He says, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb and they saw how his body was laid in the tomb. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So there were women, disciples, who had traveled with Jesus down to Jerusalem for the feast uh, and, and for the Passover, and they came with him from Galilee. Jesus' uh, main uh, center of operation, if, especially if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, was around the Sea of Galilee. That was much north of where they are now in Jerusalem. But there was a group of women, Luke tells us, who joined Jesus, went down there, followed him down to the Passover, and it was this group that then followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and whatever help they had, saw exactly which tomb it was, and, and even saw exactly how Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. Now again, that was Friday, late Friday afternoon. But these women then went back to their place of residence there in Jerusalem, and Luke tells us that they prepared their own mixture of spices and ointments, probably because they wanted to go back on Sunday and give Jesus their own uh, mixture and, and, and something that they prepared in order to honor him as their Lord. They went back on Friday afternoon and they rested all day on Saturday in order to fulfill the law because it was a Sabbath. And that's why they waited until Sunday to go back. Now, who were these women? Well, Matthew tells us that the women included Mary Magdalene and another Mary. Mark tells us that it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. So we know that there were at least three women that made their way back to the tomb that morning. You notice here, John only focuses on Mary Magdalene. He doesn't even speak of any other women being there. And, and of course, some people have uh, thought in these reports that, that there's some kind of contradiction, that because John is, is only speaking of Mary Magdalene, this is contradicting the synoptic accounts. But it's not a contradiction because all the accounts tell us that Mary Magdalene was one of the women. So, in fact, uh, she was there by all accounts. John doesn't say that only Mary went to the tomb, only that she was there and, and that she came back and reported. Remember, John's gospel was written uh, probably far later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so, by this point, John already knows what has already been reported. His goal is to report the details and the things that he wants to report that, that maybe haven't been highlighted by the other Gospels. And, and as we saw in the very first sermon, and as we see in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he tells us why he chose specifically the things that he did. He has a purpose for why he wrote what he wrote. 
Besides, if we look at Mary's statement here, it gives away the fact that she was with other women. If you look at what she reports when she goes back, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the, out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So obviously by Mary's own words, she was not alone when she went to the tomb. Now, when did they go to the tomb? Well, John tells us they went on the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, if you read the other accounts, you see that Matthew says that they went on the first day of the week toward dawn on the first day of the week. Mark says very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, and Luke says at early dawn. Now again, some readers will read these four different uh, statements of time, and they'll read in these statements that there's some kind of contradiction. I mean, after all, Mark tells us that, that they went when the sun had risen, and John tells us that they went while it was still dark. But what we have to see here, if we just read all four accounts and we get the gist of it, is that every account is telling the same story. Every account is giving the same exact day at the same exact time. They're wording it differently. In fact, Mark's gospel, which says, when the sun had risen, and John's gospel, which we're looking at now, which says, while it was still dark, they both use Interestingly, the exact same Greek word to describe the time of day, which is translated here early. They're just using different ways of describing it. I mean, after all, when you get up in the morning and the sun is just peeking over the horizon, yes, the sun has risen, but on the other hand, it's still dark. It's not bright noon. There's still plenty of darkness around. It's not pitch black. And Besides, John, again, if you look at the details, is not telling us that it was pitch black out. Because if he was, then how in the world could Mary have seen that the stone had been taken away? Obviously, there was light. Why do I point these little details out? Well, I think it's important. Because the point is this. When we look at all four gospel accounts, what we see is that each gospel writer records the exact same historical account in their own unique way and using their own unique words and verbiage. Why is that a good thing? Well, it's because it tells us that what they are reporting here is an accurate account of what really happened that Sunday morning. Why would I say that? Well, if you're a parent and you uh, are wondering what happened in the house, how do you know that the report you get back is a lie or is the truth? Let's say you go out on a date night uh, with your spouse and you come back after that date and the TV is on the floor and it's shattered. And you call all six children uh, over and you say, what happened here? Why is the TV broken? How do you know that you're being told a lie? Well, you know one of two ways. You know you're being lied to 
if every child gives you a, a completely different account of what happened, if every child gives you a different name of who knocked the TV off, or maybe what I generally encounter is that no one did. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that, that somebody, somebody told me that, that the parent used to say, uh, you know, I have three children, but really I have four because the fourth is no one. <laughs> no one did it. Um, so that's generally what we get is, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So by the time you get through all six, you realize a phantom has done this. So it's either they all tell you that someone else did it, and all of the accounts are obviously false, or someone is lying, the other way you know that they're lying is if every account is exactly the same word, right? If they tell you in exact, exactly the same phraseology, in exactly the same tempo, what happened was we were all standing here and then suddenly the TV fell off by itself. If, if you get that exact same word from all of them, you know they've colluded, you know they've gotten together and they've said, let's tell this story. How do you know they're telling the truth? You know it's the truth when all of them tell you exactly the same story in their own words. If they all give it their own flair and their own flavor and their own point of view, but you all, you get the exact same name of the same person at the same time, you know that's what really happened. And that's what we have here in these gospel accounts is you get here truthful eyewitness accounts of exactly what happened in their own words. Now, why were these women going to the tomb? Well, obviously, they were going to pay respects to their Lord by anointing his, what they assumed to be, dead body still in the tomb. They wouldn't be going there for any other reason. They were going bringing these spices with them. In fact, they were wondering, Mark says, while they were on their way, they were started to wonder, wait a second, who's going to roll the stone away? They assumed the body was still in there, exactly where it was laid, and that, and that the, the stone was, in fact, still there. They went early in the morning as well. Why would they go so early? Well, I mean... Maybe because they just cared for Jesus and maybe they were just early risers, but I suspect it's because they assume the body is still there and if they wait much longer, it will start to decay. So they need to get there early on the third day in order to prepare the body before it begins to decay. All of these things point to the fact that they were not expecting a resurrection. They went to the tomb expecting a dead body, not a risen one. What did they see when they got there? Well, not what they were expecting. Every gospel account says that when they arrived, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away from the entrance. Were, were we able to add the pictures uh, to, um, to the slides? Okay, so if you could pull up the first picture here. Uh, the garden tomb. Okay, when I was in Israel, uh, I, I, I had the, the privilege of visiting all three tombs uh, that are the uh, leading contenders 
for which tomb Jesus had been laid, uh, where his body had been laid. And uh, this one, the garden tomb, is actually uh, almost certainly not the one. Uh, the one where Jesus almost certainly was placed is a tomb that is in this church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, but that one, although is, is probably the, the one, uh, is now encased in a church. And it's very difficult to see, because of all of, the, all of the things they built around it, it's very difficult to see what it would have looked like. This garden tomb is, is, is very helpful because it essentially looks exactly the way Jesus' tomb would have looked. So when you visit the garden tomb, you see what it was like. So go ahead and, uh, and, and switch to the next. Uh, so you can see here how there is a hole there that is a, a, a rock wall, and, and the hole is carved into it, and you, and you have to walk in there. Now, if you go in, if you've visited the garden tomb, you know that it's very low, which then speaks to why, you know, John and, and Peter have to sort of stoop in and, and, and walk in like that. Uh, go to the next one. Okay, so, so you can see how, how people are walking into uh, the, the tomb. Go to the next one. And that's what it looks like inside. So you can't, you can't actually lay down or, or, or touch the slab where the body would have laid because they have that, that, that gate there. But, uh, but you can see that that's where the body would have been. So you walk into the tomb and you look over and there's the, the sort of stone uh, carved out place where the body was. And of course, when we looked in there, it looked like that. And go to the next, uh, he is not here for he is risen. The good news is, and thank you uh, for putting those up, the good news is, is that all three tombs are in fact empty. So it doesn't matter which one he was in, <laughs> none of them have a body anymore. But they go to this tomb and they see that there is no stone. Uh, I forgot to mention on the picture, you can see a groove there next to the, there's a groove where the stone would have rolled in, uh, to and away from that entrance. Now, it's important to understand that when they saw that the stone had been rolled away, their first thought was not, of course it's been rolled away because he's risen. That wasn't their thought. Their first thought, in fact, was the body has been stolen. And that's, in fact, what Mary says. If we look at our text today, verse 2, she ran... Mary Magdalene, she ran, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, why would they think that? Why would they immediately go to grave robbery? Well, apparently, according to scholars, graves were robbed all the time in those days. One scholar says this, the robbing of graves was so common in those days, that the emperor Claudius eventually ordered capital punishment to be given to those convicted of destroying tombs, removing bodies, or even displacing the ceiling of stones. I don't know why graves were robbed all the time, uh, maybe, for, maybe for the riches that, that were found in them, but for some reason, um, they were. But now, when you read John's account that Mary ran and said these words, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second. Don't the other accounts tell us that they first see the stone rolled away, then they see the, the empty 
uh, tomb, but then they see angels. That angels appear, men in white, as one of the Gospels describes them, that, the, that these angels appear, and they explicitly tell them that Jesus is not here, not because the grave's been robbed, but because he's risen from the dead. In fact, the angels not only tell them that, but they say, go and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. Well, yes, in fact, they do say that. Matthew and Luke tell us, in fact, that the women do go and tell the disciples what the angels have said. So why is it then that John gives us this account? Why does he say that, that Mary Magdalene says this? Well, there are really, I think, two possible solutions to this. One is the one that a lot of scholars believe is true, which is that Mary did not see the angels, that they all went together, but that Mary, if you kind of read John's account, she saw that the tomb had been rolled away, she turned on her heels and immediately went back to the disciples and told them without sticking around to, to hear what the angel had to say. And so that she just reported the body obviously has been stolen, and we don't know where it is. She's the one who says that. And, and that could be what happened, and that would explain what, why she says what she says. However, if you read Luke's account in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 10, Luke says this, on, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb all the women, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, why do you seek the living among the, among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And then Luke says this, now it was Mary Magdalene and Johanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So if you read Luke's account, it, it seems that Mary was there, Mary Magdalene, and that when she went back, she was one of the ones sharing these things. Now it could be that Luke, in giving us this account, is simply summarizing for us all the women who shared something with the disciples. And the, what Mary shared, the part that she shared, was that the tomb was indeed empty. It could be that. But it could also be, and it's what I happen to believe, that, that Mary saw and heard what the angels said. And that Nevertheless, she still reported what we have in, in John's gospel. Now, why would I think that? Well, for two reasons. One, all the gospels tell us that the women who heard the angels and saw the angels had a mixed reaction to the news. You don't get from the gospels a sense that when the women saw the angels and heard what they had to say, that they ran away with nothing but joy over what had happened. You don't get that sense. In fact, Matthew tells us that they left there with a mixture of fear and joy. Almost like they wanted to believe it, but they were afraid to believe it. 
almost as though they weren't sure if this was actually true. Luke says that they were perplexed. And Mark tells us that at least initially they were so confused and afraid by what they had been told that they didn't even tell anyone. For a while they were just talking about it amongst themselves and not even sharing the news with anyone. So afraid and confused were they. In other words, I think their reaction, given that Jesus had never been raised from the dead before, was exactly the reaction I think probably every one of us would have had. If you were going to a tomb expecting to find a dead body and you don't find one, and all you find is not the person himself walking around, but men in white telling you that he's been raised, what what would your reaction be? The reaction is not, oh, of course. Of course he's been raised from the dead. Why why, Why wouldn't we have thought that? I mean, the reaction is is confusion. It's fear. It's fear and confusion because they know that people who die don't normally rise from the dead. I think their reaction is is one that's very normal. They they weren't naive. They, They knew that dead bodies tended to stay dead. Now Luke tells us in addition, and this is the second reason, he tells us, and this is I think even the more important one, why Mary would have said what she said, is because he says that when these women told the apostles what had happened, the apostles completely disregarded their message as nonsense. Think about that. Luke says that the women came, and when they told these things to the apostles, these words seemed to the apostles to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, imagine that. Imagine you're already a bundle of mixed emotions. You're already unsure whether or not you can even believe this because it seems so incredible. And the first people you do decide when you gather the courage to tell are the apostles, Jesus' closest followers. You go and you tell Peter the rock. You tell John, the the disciple whom Jesus loves. You, You tell his inner circle the ones who knew him the best, the ones who you assume probably love him the most and and trust him the most. And when you tell them, hey, there was no body uh, to be found, but there were these men in white, and and they said that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he's going to meet you in Galilee. And the response you get from these men is not, of course. Of course, remember all the times he told us he would rise. The response you get from them is, you guys are making this up. We don't believe a word you say. What, what would the reaction be? What would the reaction be? You see, I can only imagine how devastating that lack of faith on the part of the apostles would have been to someone like Mary Magdalene, who again was probably wondering whether or not she ought to be believing this good news. And when they tell her you're lying or you're telling an idle tale and we don't believe you, well then I think perhaps what we have in the Gospels is a summary of a much larger conversation that is recorded, obviously. Obviously there are things said 
that we don't get in, in these gospel accounts. And, and I can imagine that Mary said both things. I can imagine Mary Magdalene coming back and, and saying something like this, look, look, after they've told her she's a liar, look, at, at the very least, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Look, if you're not going to believe that he's been bodily raised from the dead, if you're going to think that it's an idle tale, and, and maybe it is, I don't know, I don't know, I, I don't know what to believe. Look, at least know this, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Go and see it for yourself. We don't know where the body is. Because John tells us that after that, Peter and, and John get up and run to the tomb. And you see here in verses 3 through 7, a lot of little details. I love these details because Luke actually tells us the same thing. Right after saying that, that the disciples hear this report from, from these women, Luke says in Luke 24, 12, he only focuses on Peter. Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then he went home marveling at what had happened. So, so Luke, again, just summarizes everything. But John, being there, being an eyewitness, he gives us all of these neat little details. Look at, I, I, I love the details here. He says that, that he and Peter both start running toward the tomb. And he said, look, we, we started running together, but I actually beat him in the race. Now, I, I don't know why John won the race. Probably, I would, I would assume, because he's younger. And, and by, just by, by the fact that Peter's older, he can't, he can't run as fast. But it's interesting that John makes that point. I almost wonder if he's it's a little jab at Peter, you know. I beat you in something. Huh? But he does. He, he beats Peter to the tomb. But he says, look, uh, being younger, maybe, and being a little bit more hesitant and tentative, John reaches the tomb first, but he stops at the, at the entrance. And he just kind of peeks in to see if what they said is, is accurate. And then he gives, I think, a very realistic account of Peter. Because Peter, coming up second, nevertheless just bulrushes into the tomb. He, he doesn't care. He's not peeking around. He's just running in there to see, and which fits Peter's personality. But it's important, I think, to remember that just like the women, they were going, I think, not to see a resurrection, but to see a stolen dead body, or to see if these women were lying in the first place, to see a dead body. And what do they see? Well, interestingly, they don't even see the angels. All they see is a mainly empty tomb. They certainly see a tomb without a body, but they don't see the angels, they don't see the Lord walking around, and Luke tells us that, again, Peter looks into the tomb, uh, and he goes home marveling. Uh, that word marveling can even be uh, translated, he went home impressed or disturbed even. So Peter sort of has, it seems, this mixed reaction. He certainly isn't leaping for joy. He's not hugging John and, and saying, our Lord is risen. He just kind of wanders home wondering what's happened. But John says something very interesting about his reaction. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now, what was it that John believed? I think, 
Again, it, it, it may be more complicated than we at first glance think. Did he believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? That's a possibility. It's a possibility that he believed that because Jesus had told them many times before. He had already told them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They, they had heard that message from Jesus many times. And the Gospels tell us that, that they didn't understand it. They didn't, they didn't grasp it. They didn't believe it. Or they didn't know what he's talking about. And we see that. We see their ignorance in this all over the place. Also, in John's Gospel, whenever you hear the word believe, almost always it's talking about believing or having faith in Jesus. The faith that John wants us to have by writing this gospel. In other words, it could be that when John says, I saw that there was no, there was no body laying there and I believed, he is talking about faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in the resurrection. However, it doesn't have to mean that. It could also mean, because there is no object of the faith, right? There, there's, nothing, it's not, there's nothing further described. It doesn't say John believed that he had risen, just as he believed. It could mean, because there is no description of what he believed, that he simply believed what Mary told him. Because if you tie that in with what Luke says, he didn't believe at first. So he had to go see with his own eyes. And if he was going there just to see that Mary and, and, and the rest of the women were, were telling the truth, then when he looked in and saw that the body was gone, he believed what Mary had told him. He believed the account. See, again, believe at first, but if we also understand the culture of the day, then we understand that a woman's testimony was not valid in court. Women's testimony were, was thought of as really irrelevant or not valuable at all, which is, side note, another reason why the gospel accounts are so strong. Because if anyone would have made this up back in those days, they never would have had women be the first to see him. That's something to talk about in a future sermon. But it might make sense then that given that a woman's uh, account of things was not to be trusted, that these apostles who nevertheless should have trusted their sisters in Christ showed how sinful they were by just going along with the culture and saying, I'm not going to believe you until I see for myself that there's no, that there's no one in there. It doesn't really matter, though, because the key is verse 9. Verse 9 says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What does John mean by that? Well, again, I think it, it, he means by it something different depending on what he means by believing. And either one is fine. Because if he is saying that he is believing that Jesus rose from the dead, then what John is saying here is in essence this. It was only when I saw the empty tomb that I finally believed what Jesus had been saying all along because at that point in my walk with the Lord, I still didn't understand that the Old Testament said that Jesus must rise from the dead. I didn't know that Scripture pointed to this. 
So what made me believe was not the Old Testament Scripture, but seeing it with my own eyes. He's either saying that, or he's saying, I saw the empty tomb, and that Jesus' body was gone, and I finally believed what Mary and the other women were saying, that the body had been taken out and placed somewhere else. But I didn't believe that he had risen, because as yet, I didn't understand that the Old Testament said that Jesus must rise from the dead. You see, either way, he is saying something extremely important. He's saying this, and it's important for two reasons. One, it's so important to see this verse, because by saying this, John is making it clear with this one verse that the disciples were not trying to fabricate some kind of story to fit a preconceived expectation of what they thought the Old Testament promised. If they already thought that the Old Testament said that Jesus would die and after three days rise, then they would have made this story fit, or they could have been tempted to, because they wanted so desperately Jesus to be the Messiah. But by saying that he didn't know that the Old Testament pointed to this, he is saying there's no way we would have concocted this to fit what the Old Testament said. Their initial faith in the resurrection was not, in other words, to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. It was simply due to seeing it with their own eyes. Despite not being prepared for it, despite not looking for it, despite initially disbelieving it, and ultimately even themselves being utterly surprised by it, they believed the resurrection because they saw it. But secondly, it's important because it makes clear that despite the biblical ignorance of the apostles, despite what they did or did not know about what the Old Testament said, what John is saying here is that the Old Testament scriptures do, in fact, point to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in other words, the Messiah's death and the Messiah's resurrection was not out of the blue, but hundreds and thousands of years before it happened, God had already planned and promised that it would happen. See, it's important for us to understand this because I think so often as Christians, we look at the resurrection of Christ and we say, well, Jesus being God could rise from the dead. He had the power to rise from the dead. And that, of course, is true. Jesus, being who he was, could rise from the dead. But what John, I think, is saying here is that Jesus rose from the dead not only because he could. He rose from the dead because he must. If he hadn't risen from the dead, then all of God's promises would have failed. And that cannot happen. What scriptures is John talking about? Well, there are many, many passages in the Old Testament that scholars point to. But perhaps the best one, if they're talking about a passage, is Psalm 16, 9 to 10, which we quoted in our Acts 2 call to worship this morning. Psalm 16 says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. There's a promise 
that Jesus' body would not see corruption, but would be raised before that. But I think it's much more than selected passages. I think that when Scripture says, when the New Testament says that the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to the death and resurrection of Christ, what it's saying is that what we find in the whole Old Testament is a plan of redemption, a plan that finds its only logical conclusion in the death and resurrection of God's Messiah. One New Testament scholar, Herman Ritterboss, says this, the reference here is clearly not to, its, to a specific text that the disciples had not yet thought of, but, but rather it points to the whole of Scripture against the background of which Jesus had to rise from the dead, if God's saving counsel with the sending of his son, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world was to be fully realized. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier. He says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Another prominent New Testament scholar says this, Paul is not proof texting. He does not envisage one or two or even half a dozen isolated passages about the death for sinners. He is referring to the entire biblical narrative as a story which has reached its climax in the Messiah and has now given rise to the new phase of the same story, the phase in which the age to come has broken in, with its central characteristic being rescue from sins and rescue from death. Death is an, is a, an, is an intruder, a violator of the Creator's good world. The Creator's answer to death cannot be to reach some kind of agreement or compromise, do you see the point there? What he's saying? Death enters in in Genesis. Death and sin, right at the beginning. And he says, the creator who made the world good, his answer to death and sin cannot be a compromise. That's not what our God does. Death must be, he says, and in the Messiah has been and will be defeated. Anything other than some kind of bodily resurrection, therefore, is simply unthinkable. Jesus had to die for sins, and he had to rise from the dead in order to fulfill God's plan of redemption from start to finish. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, see, Christians, Christ has been raised he has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The dead will be raised imperishable. And that's why I think it's so important, and that's why I think John focuses on this. The linen cloths that are lying there. Did you notice that? Just almost, an, almost a, a, a weird obsession with the linen cloths. Why? Why? The, the, other, the other gospel accounts don't even really talk about it. P, uh, uh, Luke's account mentions it. But John zeroes in on them. Look at all the, all the detail he gives to the cloths. Stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there. 
but he didn't go in. Then Simon, Simon Peter came in following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but, but folded up in a place by itself. Why give all that attention to linen cloths? Well, I think, one, it's just more eyewitness detail. I think that's at least what's going on there. I think in addition, they're pointing out very clearly that the body could not have been stolen. Because what thieves are going to take the time to unwrap a body before they take it out of the tomb? So at the very least, it's those. But I think John, in focusing on the linen cloths, is speaking about something much deeper and much greater than that. Because if you go back to the first half of the Gospel of John, remember it's called the Book of Signs, chapters 1 through 11. And in the Book of Signs, Jesus does seven great signs, the seventh one being the greatest. The last of Jesus' signs is the raising of his friend Lazarus from the tomb. And if you go back to that account, you see in John chapter 11 that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus had to utter a command, unbind him and let him go. In that account, you see all kinds of similarities with Jesus' resurrection. You see a tomb carved out of the rock. You see a stone in front of the tomb. You see the stone rolled away from the tomb, and you see a resurrected body come out of the tomb. But there is one great difference. When Lazarus came out, his grave clothes were still on. When Jesus came out, he left the grave clothes where they had been. Lazarus, you see, according to Romans 15, was raised a natural man. Lazarus was raised, for sure, but Lazarus was not raised in a glorified state. Lazarus was raised to die again someday. And that's why he came out in the exact same body in which he went into the tomb. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was raised not a natural man, but a spiritual man. Brothers and sisters, Christ has been raised, but not in the same body in which he went in. Christ has been raised not in the same body, but in a body which death and the tomb could not contain. And when he raised he left the grave clothes behind because he would never need them again. And what Scripture says is that Jesus' resurrection into a new glorified humanity, one that will never die, is the first resurrection, is the first part of a two-stage resurrection. That when we think of the resurrection of Jesus, we ought not only to think of his, but we ought to also think of ours. Because what Scripture says is that if we are in Christ, then though death and sin could not contain him, it will not contain us either. That even though we will go to our grave because of death and because of sin, one day we too will be raised to new life again, never to die. 
we too will be glorified. And Paul says, Christian, that on that day when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this text. We thank you for this record of that morning. We thank you that you gave those men, that you gave those women a report and evidence that your son could not be contained by the grave. And Father, we come here this morning burdened by sin and each of us staring at the tomb where we are one day headed. But we know that in Christ we are conquerors. That the grave will not contain us either. And we thank you, Father, for reminding us of that truth this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.